polysyllabic words, polymorphemic words, and what it means for instruction. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I am a literacy coordinator for a local school district, an adjunct instructor at Utah State University, and I have a PhD in literacy and leadership from that institution. This podcast is all about bridging literacy research into practice. Welcome to this episode. I am very glad to have you with us. If you are listening to this episode as it is dropping, the school year is just wrapping up, so I hope that you have had a fantastic school year full of literacy and learning and that you are ready to go into your summer break and get some well-needed rest and relaxation. Just a couple items of business before we get to today's episode. I want to say a big thanks to those that have left a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get this podcast that does help get the show into the ears of teachers who can use the content that we talk about in order to support readers in their classroom. I'm also especially grateful for those that have shared this podcast with a friend or colleague. Word of mouth is the biggest way that the podcast is spreading. So please feel free to share this podcast with a friend. I'm also especially grateful for the donations that have been trickling in via Venmo. My yearly podcast hosting bill came up recently, and I was really grateful that I was able to pay for that bill and have just a little bit left over in the donation pot for other things. So uh, thank you. You can donate via Venmo. It's at TeachLit Podcast. You have to be in the business side, even though it's not a business. It's just what Venmo made me do. And then you can also donate securely via PayPal. And you can do that by going to teachingliteracypodcast.com. Click on About Your Host, and there will be a secure link there. Uh, You know, the nickels and dimes that come in really benefit the show and just helping me be able to maintain some of the ongoing costs so that it takes to run a podcast. So with that, let's get to today's episode. My guest on the show today is Dr. Devin Kearns. He's an associate professor of special education in the Department of Educational Psychology at the University of Connecticut. And his research focuses on reading disability, including dyslexia, in school-aged children. And he has an emphasis on linking educational practice to cognitive science, which makes him a great fit for the show. Dr. Kearns authored a chapter in Dr. Louise Spear-Swirling's recent book, Structured Literacy Interventions. I interviewed Dr. Spear-Swirling in the last episode about her book, so I really recommend you check that episode out. Dr. Kearns' chapter in that book focused specifically on reading long words, and the discussion in the episode today I pulled from a couple other articles that I've read and appreciated by him as well. We have a great discussion around polysyllabic words, polymorphemic words, and we also have a little chit-chat about Wordle as, as well. Dr. Kearns has some great instructional tools and resources just available for free for teachers. I'll be linking to them in the show notes, but you want to make sure to listen to the episode to get an idea of what those are and how they might benefit you in the classroom. Once you're done listening to the episode, stick around and listen to Jake's take on what we talked about. And without further ado, I bring you Dr. Devin Kearns. Dr. Devin Kearns, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. We're glad to have you on the show. To get us started, will you give us a short history of your 
background, uh, research interests, and, and how those developed into your research interests? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was an elementary school teacher in the Los Angeles area public schools for uh, seven years, uh, including a couple of those years as a literacy coach where I worked with teachers, grades K-6, and helped them implement reading instruction. Um, as part of that, uh, when I started teaching, I didn't really know how to teach reading very well. And I regret to say that uh, the first couple of classes, the students that I had didn't really learn to read very well in my class. I taught third grade and I had uh, students who came to my class and didn't know how to read. And sadly, they left my class and didn't know how to read. Uh, and so once I learned about how to teach reading, I worked at a clinic part time for kids with uh, learning disabilities, including dyslexia. And that's how I learned to teach reading. And after I learned about it, I was kind of mad that no one had ever told me about the things that I learned, right? Like, why didn't I not, why did I not know about how, you know, long vowel sounds work and things like that? That had never been explained to me uh, when I started teaching reading before in my pre-service instruction. And so once I learned about it, I was really upset that no one had told me. And I decided I was going to go to graduate school to get a degree so I could learn how to teach teachers better so they wouldn't end up like I was. Uh, it turns out, though, the graduate school is not really about that. <laughs> so if you ever want to get a PhD, I think they don't really teach you how to teach teachers. They teach you how to do research. So it turned out that that actually was a pretty good fit for me. And uh, in graduate school, though, I started to get interested in how we can study things like how do you read long words? And really long words are complicated. I know we're going to talk about that. And so I started getting interested in how do we make good decisions about what to teach kids about how words work. I love that background story. One thing that I really appreciate about your work, Dr. Kearns, is that you um, work really hard to to communicate to practitioners and in 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 ways that are familiar to them and, and applicable to them. One of those things that you've done as outreach to teachers is you have a tool called Finder, P-H-I-N-D-E-R. And yep. when I saw this, I was like, holy smokes, this is awesome. So before we get into our discussion about reading long words, will you just tell us a bit about Finder and how it might be useful for teachers and, and where they can find it? Yeah, where do you find Finder? Uh, yeah, so uh, I so Finder, which is located at devonkerns.com um slash finder b-h-i-n-e-r uh the dot com i it is for it is free so you do not need to pay a single thing to use it i created it because when i was uh teaching reading at the clinic i had to come up with lists of words all the time and it was hard sometimes i was like i can't think of another ai word like you know like what's a vowel constant you word i come up with and so uh i worked with a computer programmer and we designed this way of linking letters and sounds where it was possible to extract like one letter sound so i could just so what you can do in finder is you can type in there ai and it'll bring up uh, a and i and you click on it and basically you can click on these it'll give you a list of every word that it has in it that has like an ai that says a for example and so it's pretty helpful if you're trying to think of like words with some pattern that will help you it will help you do that. It's not as helpful for Wordle as you might like, but it is helpful for a lot of um, instructional purposes. So yeah, so that's what Finder came from. And I definitely recommend taking a look at it. Like it will always be there and a free resource for people. So definitely use it. Well, what I love about it is it also, you can uh, filter by number of syllables that you want. So maybe you're not just looking for a one syllable word, maybe you're looking for a two or a three syllable word. 
and then you can you know rank sort from least amount of syllables to highest or from third on down and you can play with a word frequency and that i mean it, it really is a very applicable tool for developing wordless and that, that was my next question was how, how it helps out with wordle because if, if teachers aren't making wordless i do know that for a fact they're all playing wordles so, uh, <laughs> right sounds like they might have to go to the scrabble dictionary or... yeah this is not the tool for that doesn't tell you about i mean i could give you a list of uh you may attach to this podcast of like high frequency like letters like you know n is the most frequent letter of the language for example so that we can do separately, but no <laughs> Finder will help you. So yeah, go check out Finder at uh, devinkerns.com. I, like I said, I, I loved it and, and I, I, I think it's a very, very useful tool. Uh, so getting into more of our, our outline, our discussion point, um, what we're gonna be talking about today is teaching students to read long words. And uh, one of the places where I, I've read, read your work recently was in the uh, structured literacy interventions text by uh, edited by Louisa Motes, and you wrote a chapter in there. Um, and and what I like about how you and I thought this was interesting at first, but you of terming it of reading long words, and I thought, well, why doesn't why doesn't he just say polysyllabic words? That sounds more academic. That sounds more researchy. And I I hope listeners, as we go throughout this outline, you'll be able to start to realize maybe why reading long words was terminology that was selected rather than just. Um, Poly, polysyllabic words or, or some other term. So, we, you know, we know that reading long words can be tricky for many readers, and uh, they're especially tricky for students who have reading difficulties. Um, can we talk for a second about why reading long words might be extra challenging for students with, with dyslexia? Yeah, for sure. One thing that's interesting about long words, is, especially polysyllabic words, is that Every one of them has a schwa in it, right? So the schwa sound, which uh, most literacy people would know, but some may not so share, is it's a reduced vowel, which means it's a shortened vowel in a word. So we don't say all the syllables with the same emphasis, right? We make some of them shorter. And it's because English is a stress time languages where we try to keep the amount of time between each stress syllable the same. And so what that means is we shorten some of the syllables to make them uh, faster to say, uh, which works great, except that sometimes it means you have to say things in the way that they aren't spelled. So for example, you know, the reduced vowel sound is closest to like a short U sound, an uh sound. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's closest to that. But sometimes you'll have a letter A or a letter O that's spelled with the schwa sound. And the problem is that it's hard to figure out, like if you sound it out with the regular vowel sound, like in about, if you say the A with an A sound, A with an A sound, A about, 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 like the A doesn't sound the same. And so for children who have difficulty with reading, if they sound it out as about, it might be hard for them to actually make that switch to make it about. And so for children who have difficulty with phonological processing, sound processing, doing these kinds of manipulations can be particularly difficult. And some call I've done research and some of my colleagues have done research on the fact that one thing that actually is really hard for kids is uh, who have difficulty is basically taking something that sounds almost right and turning out into the right thing. I don't know if any of your listeners have ever had uh, students who, you know, they could sound out but they couldn't say fan and that's not uncommon because the sounds in band don't sound exactly the same as the word fan 
And that kind of thing is especially prominent in Islamic works. And so it can be very hard for kids to read them. There are also more pieces to put together, that kind of thing. So there's other stuff too. But one of the biggest issues is that um, the letters often don't say exactly what you expect. And that's something fascinating that I find in the phonological world that us proficient readers might have a blind spot there where we're not realizing those subtle shifts in, in vowel sounds or buh. We're turning the sound for letter B into really three sounds. And those are subtle things that right. might not matter to us, but for they matter for developing readers. And they especially matter for students that uh, are have challenges with reading. So, totally. so being accurate and precise really really does matter. Uh, so so I'm, I'm assuming that our, our listeners are are familiar with syllables. I really like how you describe syllables in your right in your in your writing as every part has a vowel and every part has to look okay. So can you give us a pre a brief recap on uh, syllabication and how you um, how can you can you give us a brief recap on on syllabication and then also how um, some additional background on syllables and, and, and teaching syllables. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so basically, I mean, that's the definition of a syllable is that it has, a, it's a vowel, it's a vowel centered unit in a word, right? So, uh, and usually that comes with a vowel letter. There are a few cases where there isn't a vowel letter, but most of the time there's a vowel letter that sort of anchors the syllable. So. When, uh, when you write, every part has a vowel, that both means it sounds like a vowel and it means that it has vowel letters in it. So one recommendation often is to do something called ishalob, E-S-H-A-L-O-B, uh, meaning every syllable has at least one vowel. I did not come up with that. Rolanda O'Connor, who's a researcher, um, who's done a lot of really great work, came up with that. Um, and so Rolanda O'Connor's, every syllable has at least one vowel. That's true. And so sometimes people actually, when kids are trying to learn how to break words into parts, they'll have kids like underline the vowels, for example, to help them understand that like these different parts have to be separated because this is a vowel and that's a vowel. Of course, with the vowel constant E patterns, that gets really complicated. Fortunately, they're most of the time at the end, which makes it a little bit easier, although not always, which makes it a little trickier. Um, so that is the first piece of it in terms of having a vowel. The second piece of it in terms of like looking okay is that syllables can't begin or end with letter combinations, English that don't exist. So this is kind of like the wordle effect, I guess, is like you have to have uh, combinations of letters that are uh, reasonable to have in the language, right? So, so for example, the word that I did today, Wordle was cargo, I think. And, oh, sorry. I haven't played it yet. That, that's okay. I, I actually lost yesterday for the first time in a while. Yeah, a lot of people did. Uh, I almost lost too. What was the word yesterday? I forget. <laughs> uh, foyer, but my last word was joker that I guessed. And I'm, I'm, I'm still pretty upset. So I might take a day off of Wordle. So. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, so all right. So I apologize for that. But uh, in that one, you know, if, if you're going to break cardio into syllables, you can't do C-A and then R-G-O. Um, not simply because it's R sound, but also because it doesn't look right, right? So if you do the R-G-O, that unit is not a pattern in English. You never have a syllable start with R-G in English. So when you break words into syllables, the parts have to look okay, and that the letters have to appear the way they do in a real word, like at the beginning or the end of a real word. 
I really like that addition of the the looking okay. You know, our listeners are probably somewhat familiar with you know the six different right. syllable patterns of open and closed, and and those can sometimes be tricky to kind of keep track of. But for me, it seems very pragmatic to say, well, is that a letter combination that we have in English, and having that be a strategy to also assist with those others yep. to to divide up a word into syllables. Um, this is an area that I've been very interested in the last little bit. It's been a, a blind spot in my research knowledge, and I've been really trying to study hard to to learn more about it. But our, our listeners are probably less familiar with morphemes than they are with syllables. So can you talk a bit about morphemes and how we typically categorize morphemes? Sure. All right. Well, I'll get into the weeds for a minute, and then you can edit this however you want. The weeds is where I want to go. So that's, that's, let's do it. Yeah. All right. The morpheme is a unit of meaning in a word. So I'll start with a word like basketball. So basketball has three syllables, basketball, um, but it has two morphemes, right? It has the basket, which is one meaning, and ball, which is the other. So those are morphemes or units of meaning. And the word basketball, both of them happen to be free morphemes, which means they can also be words. So you some you have both free morphemes and bound morphemes. Bound morphemes can't be words on their own. For example, like viz and visible, that's a bound morpheme. You can't separate it from letters like I-B-L-E. You have to have something connected to it. Those are, in that case, viz is also a root. So roots are parts of words that have meanings that form kind of the core of the word, but are not usually, or not, I shouldn't say not usually, are sometimes not complete words on their own. They're bound morphemes. The other kind of bound morphemes you have are inflections. So inflections are parts of uh, their endings that don't affect the meaning of the word in any way, but they affect like the tense, like ed, ing, or the number, plural, singular. So those are inflections. And then uh, derivations or derivational affixes are added, and those do change the meaning in some way. It'll change a noun into a verb, like you well, we made a noun into an adjective, like act to active, and it can change the meaning by adding a, a, a prefix like un, which means not. And so all of those are different aspects of morphology is that they, these are kind of meaning parts of the words. And there's all kind of extra fun complexities to it, but those are the main ones. Also, there are compound words, which are words that are composed of two free morphemes. They're the simplest ones in English. They're kind of like the original Anglo-Saxon morphemes are those ones. We kind of compounded things early on, like German does that anyway, since the language is ultimately Germanic. That makes a lot of sense. And then the Latin, which came to Britain, yeah, I don't know, whenever, <laughs> whenever it was conquered by the Romans, I don't know. I think 1066, I think, I think it's I, or, no, that was the French one. That was right. Yeah, I get that right. That's what, that's what the Normans came, the French, right? So yeah, I think it's that's connected too, right? Because I think after the Norman conquest, that was when like at court they only spoke French and like the you know the plebes outside of the castle all spoke you know English. And I think it kind of eventually blended together. The result is that we have a lot of Latin-based words that aren't compounds but have derivations. I'll just put a plug in uh, for Freddie Hebert's book, Teaching Words and How They Work. She has a great chapter on the the history of English and why it matters. So there's a, a plug if, if that sort of thing is your jam. But I, I what I like about morphemes is I, I feel there's this national conversation right now around orthographic mapping and, and Linnea Airy's work. And, and shout out to Dr. Dana Robertson for tipping me off to this of, 
when we think about orthographic mapping, that we, we're typically thinking about that as connecting uh, graphemes with phonemes, right, of cementing that. But if you, you know, really look at her work, and especially she has a 2014 publication, which is very clear, where it's really mapping the phoneme and the grapheme with the morpheme. So it's, it's also being able to have the meaning of that word bound also to its, its sounds and its, its letter appearance. And that's where I think morpheme, morpheme instruction, morphemic analysis can be really powerful is because it is helping bind meaning to the word rather than just being able to strictly decode the word. So you distinguish between polysyllabic words, which I'm, I can almost guarantee the listeners are familiar with, but this is a word you've introduced me that I like is polymorphemic words. So can you define polysyllabic mm-hmm. versus polymorphemic, where there's overlap and then where there's differences and why those differences matter? Yeah, sure. Well, to start, I'll just talk about polysyllabic. So, so for a long time, I always said multisyllabic. And then when I had to write about this, like academically for the first time, I really struggled because in the literature, like the academic literature, some people say polysyllabic, some people say mono, morph, uh, multisyllabic. I wasn't sure which to pick. And basically I landed on polysyllabic, even though that's not traditionally what people had said in education, because it matched up with polymorphemic. So poly meaning many, right? And syllabic meaning syllable. So polysyllabic, more than one syllable. Polymorphemic, more than one morpheme. So a polymorphemic word is, you know, basketball is a polymorphemic word. It has two morphemes. Basketballs is a polymorphemic word. It has three morphemes. So Polymorphic words have more than one word. So an example of this, and I, I, I love this, and this is in your, I think it's a 2018 publication with Victoria Whaley. So you present two words and they, they both have 12 syllables. And I'll just read off the words and then we can talk about them. So the first word that has 12 syllables, it has six different morphemes. And so the word is pseudo-pseudo-hypothyroidism. So hearing that word, they're probably to pick out several different morphemes that they're familiar with, like such as, you know, pseudo and hypo and and thyroid is a word that they're probably familiar with and then ism. And then I I apologize for, for listeners who are proficient in Hawaiian language, but the other word that has 12 syllables, it's only one morpheme. And the word is humu humu nuku nuku apua. And, and it's the state fish of Hawaii is what it is. And it's also known as a reef trigger fish. More common. Yeah. So will you talk about those two words and why one word, they both had 12 syllables, but, you know, why one of those seems so much, you know, stickier, uh, you know, to, to the majority yeah, of us listening sure. than the other. Well, that's the neat thing about morphemes is they kind of create bigger packages for you. So one advantage to learning morphemes, to teaching kids morphemes, especially kids with reading difficulty is it creates bigger units for them. So it's a little bit easier sometimes to put words together if you can put them together in like bigger packages. So humu, humu, nuku, nuku, you know, every one of those, humu, humu, those don't mean anything to us. So we have to look at them one at a time. And when you have Lots of unfamiliar units like that become very hard to read them. Whereas with pseudo pseudo, we we've seen pseudo before, right? And so we know that we, we that part of that chunk of the word is kind of worked out for us already. So when we look at that whole unit, we can say it together as opposed to having to look at all the individual mini pieces, right? So that's where like 
Shun, T-I-O-N. It's really helpful. That's four letters. And you can, if you see T-I-O-N, you know that's Shun. And basically that part of the word is solved for you. Like Shus, T-I-O-U-S, like even more so, right? Shun, T-I-E-N-T. So all these things are kind of packages of letters that you can kind of peel off so that there's not as much work to do figuring out everything that the word says. And that's what I think is really the advantage is they, they make reading long words. It makes, you end up with fewer parts when you try to re- read the long word. And that I think is a really powerful aspect of thinking about trade-offs between polysyllabic construction and polymorphemic construction is, you know, we know that the, the progression of reading, uh, you know, very much deals with being able to process very efficiently larger chunks of language at a time. So progressing from, you know, single letters to groups of letters to whole words. And, um, you know, for some of our readers, it, it, it might be more beneficial if, if pseudo is a single chunk, rather than having to mm-hmm. divide that into its two syllables, it, it, it makes more sense to help us to, you know, process pseudo as that single chunk than it is to, you know, perhaps uh, divide it by syllable when, when once you break it down by syllable, you're also losing losing the meaning. Um, is there any, is, can, can you comment a little bit more on, you know, trade-offs between uh, polysyllabic and polymorphemic in, instruction and, and when one might be preferred over the other or how thinking, thinking about strategically yeah. clear on both of those? It, you, need, you need strategies for both things. Um, English has a lot of polymorphemic words. Uh, wish I could think of a statistic, but over two syllables, most words, most three syllable plus words have at least two morphemes in them. So it's really convenient to learn about morphemes because you're going to encounter a lot of them, but they're not going to help you all the time. There are plenty of words that only have one morpheme, but have more than one syllable. And the result is that you need to figure out how to read those words if you can't figure out the, you know, the individual pieces on their own. So, you know, um, a word like like cargo, you need to figure out how to break that into two pieces and neither of them go happens to be a word, not related to the meaning, but you have to figure out a way to, I guess, car, car does too, uh, car is a word too, um, but you have to figure out how to break those into pieces. It's a really bad example, but onion or something like that. I mean, you know, there's no meaningful parts in there. You have to figure out a way to break it up. Onion's a really hard one. I'm coming up with a really bad word choices this morning. Uh, what's another example? I need to be pretty good at the like locomotion, that's what I think of, right? So locomotion, it has the shun in it, but but the rest of it, you still have to figure out, right? You have the logomo, and how do you, why not la, comma, or whatever? You need to have a strategy for breaking it into pieces so you can read it. So you're not going to get far enough just with the morphemes, but the morphemes are really helpful to teach kids, even if you're not spending a lot of time on meaning, just as sound units, they can be really useful. Connecting them with meaning uh, is helpful too. One of the, some of the data suggests that one of the real advantages of polymorphemic instruction is it tunes kids into the meaning parts and words in a way that actually supports vocabulary and reading comprehension development. So for older students, uh, including kids with disabilities, uh, over, and kids who are multilingual learners, uh, over like sixth grade, one of the really great benefits of morphological instruction is it improves kids' vocabulary. Uh, and there have been some really great studies showing the power of that and tuning kids into how, uh, you know, these parts have meanings is incredibly useful. 
So that's great. But then there are going to be cases where you need to figure out how to break a word into pieces. And that's where people talk about things like, so will the vision as a way of, which, you know, is complicated and sort of like almost controversial, as you know, but, uh, but it is important to have a strategy that's not just about the markings. You're going to need smaller parts as well. Fantastic. So if I summarize that, if we're talking, you know, words that are three syllables or more, perhaps thinking of a morphemic approach, breaking into meaningful word parts might be a first step, but also being aware that there's going to be words that where we do have to have more of a strictly syllable decoding emphasis because it, uh, you know, perhaps those morphemes aren't very, you know, clear to students, or perhaps that uh, there just isn't a neat, tidy way to break it into morphemes. And so then a, a syllabic approach might be more beneficial. Is that an accurate summary? Yep. No, that's exactly right. You, you, I, I'll stop saying things because you summarize it nicely. So can you talk to us about what might cue in a teacher to know when an individual or when a group of students need support with reading long words? Well, it'll begin by showing up with difficulty reading short words. If they have difficulty reading short words, the long words will be hard for them too. What you'll find is that there are going to be students though who can who have learned good strategies for reading short words, but that starts to fall apart when they read long words because they don't have good strategies for doing it. So I'm sure all of your listeners have worked with students who they learned, you know, they had difficulty reading. They taught them some foundational ideas about how letters and sounds are connected. That all seemed to work well, but then when they were asked to apply that to long words, it didn't work because there are parts of these words that aren't familiar and they don't have a strategy for breaking them apart. That's what you're going to see in students kind of like frozen by these letter sound units that are not familiar to them. They'll probably try to break them up by letter sound the same way i say letter sound by the way i, I know that letter sounds are not letter sound it's just convenient um once upon a time i got really mad at people saying letter sound and i'm like no that's not a thing it's not just letters it's, you know graphemes which is true but it's really convenient to say letter sounds so i know they're graphic coding for it but i'm just gonna say letter sound i do want your listeners to know i know that that is not exactly always the right term in any case so kids will use letter sounds because that's what they know but it doesn't work very well. It takes a long time. It's really laborious. And if you don't have a strategy for breaking into pieces of any kind, you're going to struggle. So that's what you'll see is kids trying to do it sound by sound. And that is or letter, letter or letter combination by letter combination by graphing by graphing. That's not going to work. Part of that deals with, with short-term memory, right? I mean, if you're, mm -hmm. if you're trying to do sound by sound by sound by sound, by the time you get to the end of the word, you know, you, you don't have enough bandwidth of processing to be able to remember where you were at, at the, at the beginning, at the beginning of the word. Yeah. And for your listeners who know about, you know, phonological processing, the data indicate like, you know, verbal short-term memory is a critical part of being able to do phonological processing. And you're right. You're really straining it. The, the more things you have to keep in mind. Yep, exactly. That's a, double deficit, I think is what that's called in the literature, right? Where student struggles with not only the phonological aspects of reading, uh, but also uh, struggles with, with short-term processing. And so those, those specific types of students have a very challenging time with, with reading in general, but especially, especially long words. Yep. Um, so you, you outlined earlier in the episode, the, the Eshelov um, approach for polysyllabic words. Can you outline one specific kind of step-by-step -step of of, of instruction for what it would be like to teach a polymorphemic word. Yeah, sure. 
One that I, so there are a number of them, but most of them involve like ethics peeling is kind of the idea. So really it's looking for affixes on the borders of the word, on the outside edges of the word. And uh, I like the term, you know, peeling off is a term that was used by Maureen Lovett and colleagues and their program called FAST. They now market it by a different name. So I'm not going to talk about programs. So I'll just say the research version was FAST, P-H-A-S-T, Phonological and Strategy Training. And the strategy was that if you got a long word and more than one syllable, you'd look for morphemes. They taught a bunch of morphemes so students could remember them. They had a peeling off tree. So basically like they'd have, you know, lists of morphemes that you would teach the kids to read quickly and so on. And then they look for those in the words and they'd peel them up. So they would take off the more, the, uh, the, you can't see me with my hands pulling things out of the air here, but, um, basically you kind of almost literally peel them up. You cover them with an index card or something one by one until you got down to a core that couldn't be divided anymore. And then you try to figure out how to read that core component and it was like pseudo pseudo hypoparathyroidism, you get down to thyroid, you have to sound out thyroid because that part can't be broken down anymore. Once you got that part, you can put it back together and read the affixes and then say the whole word. So that's the, that's the strategy. And it's, it's in a lot of different programs. Anita Archer developed a program that has this, they have this covert and this overt strategy. Really the strategies of, I mean, in her version, you circle the affixes, and then when you get down to kind of the core of it, you underline the vowels, like we talked about before, you know, that every syllable at least one vowel, you break into parts, and then you put it back together. And I love it because, uh, like many things Anita Archer does, they're very well thought out. And I love it because it's a really quick and easy way to do the work, like when you're reading. So the way that she recommends teaching it really aligns with the idea that you need something that's quick and easy and you can do on the fly, which is to say while you're reading aloud. And so that sort of like find the affixes, break the part according to the syllables based on, you know, they have at least one vowel, put it back together and read it. Uh, it's really efficient and effective. And so um, it's, again, I'm not gonna name programs, but I'll tell you this, that if I were to have written a phonics program, I wish I'd written the one sheet because I think it's so good. Excellent. Yeah. Anita Archer, always attention to precision there. And I appreciate the thinking about, you know, covert strategy and overt strategy of in the end of teaching a, a, a reader, if they can apply that strategy when they are encountering difficult and challenging text, you know, that, that also matters. You know, we, we can give them, help them with the automaticity with the words that we're working on, but if they can transfer a strategy outside of that instruction, then that's obviously a, a major win. Totally. And, and I realized when you did the correct pronunciation that I, I misread the, the pseudo pseudo hypoparathyroidism earlier. I, I didn't include the, the para. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I could benefit from some of these strategies as, as well, because that's a long word that was difficult for me to read. Right. It also turns out that I've said that word a lot of times because I wrote about it. So practice, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So this is a question that I've kind of fielded a few times this year, and I haven't quite known how to how to answer it. So my question is, are there guidelines for how many syllables or how many morphemes that students should be able to read in a single word at different, like third grade versus fourth versus fifth versus middle grades versus high school, how to kind of hone in or be strategic with the amount of syllables we're teaching them to decode? 
Yeah. Thanks for asking the question. I can't answer either. Um, so I don't know exactly. I think, you know, so I, with my doctoral students, we've done some work, uh, done a lot of analyses of words, right? As you, you know, anyone who's kind of read anything I've done, I do a lot of analysis of words in the language and trying to understand their features. What's always hard is that there's this trade-off between the number of units that you have to teach somebody and their utility in terms of understanding the language. So there are going to be morphemes that only apply to a few words. And so if there are morphemes that only apply to like say 40 words, the question is whether or not it's useful to teach them. I don't have a really clear answer on that. You can ask the same question about letter sounds, you know, or graphing phoning correspondences. How many you're supposed to teach? I have no idea. What I can tell you having done this analysis is if you teach 350 of them, you can pretty much read every word a kid in fifth, excuse me, in fifth grade would need to know, right? But who's going to teach kids 350 letter sounds? No one, because a lot of them are really unusual and unhelpful to teach somebody, right? So, um, for example, ACH says all, like in yacht, not really helpful for kids to learn, right? So there, and then, but somewhere down around like, hundred sort of the sweet spot seems to be in terms of the trade-off between frequency and the utility is somewhere around like a hundred between like 90 and a hundred letter sounds will get you a lot of words in the language after that the fewer you teach the fewer words you get in the language but the fewer things students have to remember and that's the trade-off right so i don't have a good answer about how many you should teach because there just isn't an answer. It's really just a question of like, how much of the language do you think kids have to be able to know? Uh, do they have to be able to know by using letter sounds, right? And if you really think it's essential for them to have a letter sound strategy for most words, then you need to teach more letter sounds. If you don't think it's very important, then you teach fewer of them. And this is kind of like, I don't want to go too far down the road with you because it's not part of the point of the podcast, but it's about whole language versus kind of phonics or balanced literacy versus phonics. A big disagreement, you know, balanced literacy people um, who sort of like have, they say they believe in phonics and I believe them. But the difference between the way they think about it and kind of a science reading person thinks about it is how extensive that should be. Balanced literacy people want to do like the alphabet letters and a few other things like vowel constant pattern and that's it. And science of reading people want more. How much more is the question? So I have not answered your question because I don't think there is a good answer. Um, it's just a matter of how detailed you want students to be in terms of their understanding of units within words. Do they need a lot of them or is it better to give them fewer of them, but ones that are really high power, be quite a lot of words, and then kind of allowing them to extrapolate from there. There isn't a good answer on that. But, um, you know, I think that in general, the limited way that a lot of balanced literacy people want to do it is too limited. I think you can go too far in the other direction. Like I've read that, you know, GU says like in penguin. Okay. We are way down the like the path of too much there. So, so I don't have a good answer, unfortunately, but, um, I'm, I actually have on my website, network.org. Don't ask me why I have two of them. It's just like, it was some, it's not like I'm trying to sell anything on the .com. It's just that like, anyway, it's complicated, <laughs> but what I will say is on democrats.org, I actually have a list somewhere on there of um, really frequent uh, letter sounds. 
or graphing funding correspondences. So for your listeners, like if you go there, I think you, it's pretty easy to find on there somewhere. It's like resources for teachers. So, you know, you can make your own decision, right? About like which ones are useful to teach and based on what you think your students need. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that for kids with dyslexia and learning disabilities, the reason people want to teach those kids, a lot of them, is that it feels like it gives the kids an anchor, right? So one of the challenges kids with learning disabilities have is that it's hard for them to kind of put things together and sort of do that thing I was talking about earlier. Like you can't figure out exactly, it doesn't sound exactly the right way. People want to give kids more information so they don't have as much work to do trying to like kind of put things together kind of by inference. And so they want to give kids all of the information to help them put it together, which means you teach a lot more of that. Whether or not that's a good idea isn't entirely clear. Like, well, it's helpful to teach a lot of letter sounds. Where you stop, nobody knows because it really kind of depends on a lot of factors. One of which is how good is the kid at remembering letter sound combinations, right? So anyway, I, I'm really good at not answering your questions. So don't they answer that one either. I don't have a good answer because I don't think they're really, it's one. Well, I, I think you hit on a really couple important things and, I, and I'll find that resource and I'll link to that in the show notes. That's okay with you for this. So folks can just find it easy. Please. Uh, but a, a small critique of mine that I have of the science of reading movement is sometimes it's presented in practitioner circles as this is settled science. This is done science. This is we, we, we know and, and we do know a lot. But I, I think this discussion that we're having shows where there is room for further research and further evolution and, and, and thinking strategically of that trade off between, you know, what is what has the most you know, utility across the most amount of words versus the instructional time that we can actually spend reading all those other words. And that's, and I think that's a, a trade-off that's very prevalent in vocabulary instruction, you know, single word vocabulary instruction is, as well. What, what words do kids need to know? Well, I, it depends on the text you're reading and depends on how you, how much utility that word has across context. You know, there's a lot of words in English. No, it's right. I mean, it's like, you know, I worked on a, a reading program for middle schoolers. Uh, we, we're trying to help teachers decide what words to teach. And it's sort of like, you know, people talk about kind of tiered words, right? Like tier one words are really common, tier two words are kind of high utility academic words, tier three words are really content specific. And it gives you the impression like you should focus on tier two words. But I think as you alluded to, you need tier three words a lot too. Like you need to teach kids tier three words for certain texts, right? So like I have the example I always give is like the you know that, I don't know if you remember the short story, The Lottery from high school. No, I'm not familiar with I had that. to read it. Uh, oh, it's interesting. So a word of the story is paraphernalia, which is important because for this lottery this town has, they need paraphernalia, right? You sort of have to understand what that word means. It's a really uncommon word, but for reading the lottery, it's actually pretty helpful to understand what that means. And um, it's worth a read. It's a really, it's one of those like, it's a, well, I'm not gonna say it's a fun story. The ending is kind of upsetting, but the idea that you need paraphernalia is a really good one. So, um, so you need some of those tier three words, right? But we need to be just strategic about how many of those do we teach versus those high utility tier two words. So yeah, lots of trade-offs and you really need to make a decision based on the con. I mean, you're, I'm gonna stop again because you said all the things that I should have said, so. Well, uh, well Dr. Kearns, thank you for joining us on the show. This has been a wealth of knowledge for me and a very engaging discussion. Uh, we've, we've kind of already mentioned some of these of devonkearns.com, devonkearns.org, 
maybe there's a .net or a .xyz we we haven't mentioned. I know yet, those but, are the only those are the only ones I've got. So if you go to the other. I don't know what the other ones have, so just don't do it. But uh, definitely go to those two. The .com one has the slash binder. It's because it, basically it's a web hosting thing, and the, the .org is where everything else lives. That's where the most of the resources are. There's stuff about vocabulary and stuff on there too. I just suggest people. See what you can find. There's a number of things. There's like a list of like the Dolch and Fry words to like never find them. So if you want those, they're up in there too. So just take a look. You'll probably find Wonderful. And, and for, uh, you know, listeners interested in in reading a bit more about what we talked about, I, I heartily endorse uh, Dr. Kearns' chapter in Louise Spear-Swirling's book, Structured Literacy Interventions. And that'd be a great way to get a little bit additional information on the what we've been talking about today. Um, so Dr. Kearns, the final question that I ask all my guests what do you, what do you think makes a good teacher? I think uh, knowledge paired with skill, paired pairing for kids. Um, I it's not enough to know things about words, um, and it's the ability to apply that knowledge in ways that make it understandable for children. If you understand how so would work, that's great. But if you can't communicate that to kids in ways that allow them to read quickly and efficiently, then it isn't enough. So I think those are kind of the things in terms of reading, those are the things you need. Of course, you need a lot of sort of these soft socio-emotional skills now more than ever. But in terms of like the reading stuff, I think the skill uh, pair of knowledge is really the key. Excellent. Dr. Devin Kearns, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Big thanks to Dr. Kearns for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Here's my quick take on what we talked about. As listeners of the show, you're probably familiar with Scarborough's rope, the reading rope, right, where you have a decoding strand and you have a language strand. And that's, of course, taken from Turner and Go's simple view of reading. And what I really liked about what Dr. Kearns had to say about polymorphemic instruction and, and thinking around that is typically we think of those as two different strands right? That there's things on the decoding side and there's things on the language side. What I really like that he brings to the table is it's not that vocabulary is on the language strand and the decoding is just on the decoding strand, but that when we're talking polymorphemic instruction, we can actually be doing both strands at the same time. Those multiple strands of the rope matter, but in the end, if we're going to be effective teachers of literacy, all those different strands of the reading rope have to become a rope. And the rope is having a literate reader. And so I love in thinking about polymorphemic instruction is that by helping students peel apart the morphemes and be able to recognize the word, it's going to help them decode the word, which I'm thinking of terms of cognitive efficiency, that if a student can input a bigger chunk of a morpheme rather than going by all the individual syllables, perhaps maybe like a three morpheme word versus a five syllable word, that could be a way to help readers process the word more efficiently. You know, we had the example of the pseudo-pseudo-hypoparathyroidism, and uh, that word sticks out to me now, and I could probably get a pretty good stab at spelling that word. The other word that was the state fish of Hawaii, I just, I, I, I'm sure there are morphemes in the Hawaiian language that help make up that word, but uh, for me as a non-Hawaiian speaker, it's, it's 12 syllables. I just don't remember it that well. If I had to decode it again, I definitely could, but I'd probably have to kind of chunk it up by syllables. I'd have to use 
you know, those rating strategies that I fall back on when, uh, uh, you know, when the decoding isn't happening efficiently. So I just appreciate Dr. Kearns opening my eyes to thinking about polymorphemic instruction or teaching students how to read words that have multiple morphemes. And the benefits of that of being that we get all sides of orthographic mapping, right? We get the morphemes, which is the, the meaning of the word. We get the phonemes, which is how that word sounds. And we get the graphemes, which is how it's, it's spelt. So I think there's, there's some pretty strong implications for that. And, and related, yeah, I, I know I'm glowing a little bit over polymorphemic construction, and that's because it's, it's a new door to me. It's something that I find very, very interesting and intriguing and something I didn't really think about six months ago. But at the same time, we can't shortchange polysyllabic instruction. In the show, I asked Dr. Kearns, well, which, which one's better? You know, which one should we do? And it's not this either or. It's not, well, you should choose polysyllabic instruction or you should choose polymorphemic instruction. It's a both and, meaning that there are times when polymorphemic instruction might be the way to go. There's times when polysyllabic instruction might be the way to go. And there's a lot of times where those two things are going to overlap. As we be strategic of when we're using which and we be strategic with how we are getting both sides of the reading rope to become a rope, we will be productive teachers of literacy, which I think at the end of the day is the goal that we all want. That is all I have for you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining the show. You can all, <clears throat> of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get the podcast. And oh, as always, feel free to share the podcast with a friend as we keep growing. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.